I, I think that's a very good question. Let me turn to um, Job, and please feel free to ask whatever question you wish. We do have uh, some handouts here. I think it's uh, chapters, what, uh, 19 and 20? Chapters 19 and 20 of questions. And I, again, this is just a teaching tool to help um, uh, help you read the passage just a little bit more carefully. And if you're like me, sometimes you just run right through it and you go over things that really need to be thought about and have important meaning and give us insight into the passage. And that's what this is designed to do, maybe to read it a little more carefully if you wish. Um, we are in a difficult passage. We're in uh, the book of Job. Job is a difficult book. Uh, we're in chapter 19. I read, I read all these things, the commentaries and things like that about these different uh, books and Bible passages that we're reading and studying and somebody will make a comment and then I chase that down and read about it. And I, I read somewhere, somebody said, and I don't, know, I don't know who it was, and I certainly couldn't think this up myself, but this 19th chapter is a skyscraper, how did they put it, a skyscraper chapter out of the 42 chapters in the book of Job. That really, very eloquent way of saying it, and I'm not doing it justice, but chapter 19 is the apex of the book of Job. Now, if you were to ask me that, I'd probably go to Job 14, 42, 41 and 42 uh, to answer that question. What's the greatest passage in the book of Job? I don't really know. But I would have probably gone to 41 and 42, but I, as I thought about it, I think this chapter 19 where we are tonight certainly deserves that kind of uh, description. It is a skyscraper kind of uh, passage with regard to this landscape and the skyline that we're studying out of the book of Job. And basically, this is Job's reply to Bildad, and Bildad makes his comments in chapter 18, and here Job makes his response to that, and you'll remember the three different cycles of speeches. Here, one friend will uh, speak, and then Job will answer. Then another friend, Bildad will speak, and Job will answer. And then Zophar will speak, and Job will answer. Well, you go through three of those cycles. And basically, what the discussion is about is why is Job suffering the way he is? And basically, the discussion revolves around the idea, how can people suffer? Why do people suffer? Why do people go through what they go through? And how can that mean that God is still a righteous God? And Job is wrestling with that. Uh, the outcome of the book of Job is that God wasn't punishing Job. Satan was doing that to Job. And Job maintained his faith. So the big point for us, as far as the takeaway is concerned, that even when I have severe <clears throat> severe reversals in life and fear, severe problems in life and, and physical aches and pains, and sometimes they're very severe. Uh, I'm to maintain my faith in God and draw closer to God, not go farther away from him. I've actually seen people. And I talked to a fellow today on the telephone long distance. He says he doesn't believe in God. And I said, you can't say that. He says, yes, I can. I said, no, you can't say that. You can't consistently, honestly say that. Why would you say that? He said, because of the suffering that's in the world and because of the sin that's in the world. I said, don't you know that's not God's fault? 
Don't you know that that's Satan's fault? He's responsible for that. Why would you blame God for that? And so that's where the discussion lies. The discussion, though I didn't get anywhere with him in that discussion over the telephone, still that's where this discussion lies is people suffer, innocent people suffer through no fault of their own. Sometimes we suffer because of our own wrongdoing. But here we're talking about a man who was suffering not because of his wrongdoing, but because of Satan putting him to the test. And again, the bottom line is that Job was sufficiently faithful to be pleasing in the sight of God. We're going to see that here in this particular chapter. So I'm in Job 19. You have some questions there and may want to fill them out as I go along. And uh, this is a second reply to Bildad. Then Job responded, chapter 19 and verse 2, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Now, they've bannered that back and forth, you know. They've come across that idea, you know, you're full of a lot of air, you're full of a lot of hot air, you're full of a lot of words, and you really give us a lot of discussion. And that's come up a number of times. Go back over there to chapter 18 and verse 2, where you see Bildad say that. How long will you hunt for words, show understanding, and then we can talk? So they have knocked that ping-pong ball back and forth uh, in regard to the matter. It comes up several times, and here it is in our chapter 19. And crush me with words. And, and basically Job is saying, Job is saying that, you know, you really have been harsh and coarse and unkind toward me in all of this. You are miserable counselors. And you could have at least said one time, I understand what you're going through. Of course they couldn't, but they would not even offer that element of commiseration with regard to Job. I mean, it was constantly a harangue against Job. You are guilty, you are guilty. These 10 times you have insulted me. You are not ashamed to wrong me. And I think the 10 times simply is an idiom, which means you've done it over and over and over again. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. That was never on their mind. They could have easily said, I sure am sorry you're suffering. I'm sorry that you're having to go through this. And that could have been very sincere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, these um, three friends, and then a fourth is going to come on the scene here later. But uh, these three friends have really been a persecution. Satan is using them against Job. He's using every opportunity he can to get him to recant and reject God. Uh, You are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, uh, my error lodges with me. Now, what is he saying there in verse? If it is the case, he's speaking hypothetically. If it is the case that I did err. It's my business. Even if it is the case, he's not saying that he did. But even if it were the case that I did that, it's a hypothetical if. Even if I have truly erred, then it would certainly be my business. It wouldn't be your business. It wouldn't be your business to point out the mistakes and the problems that I've had. My error lodges with me if indeed you vaunt yourself against me and and prove my disgrace to me. Know that know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. So it's pretty clear to whom Job is 
assigning this suffering. He said, God's done this to me. Now, he didn't have the benefit of reading about the book of Job like we do. We know that God didn't do it to him. But in this particular instance, he's saying, God has done this to me. Uh, He's wronged me, verse 6. There's a word there, that word wrong, translation. You might have judgment. God's misjudged me. There has been unfair judgment here. God's justice hasn't been just when it comes to me because I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve the suffering that I'm going through. So he really responds back to his friend here in a very straightforward way. And and they're pretty rough with each other in their discussions back and forth. And we come now to this verse 7. And he's talking about God here. And if you look at the pronoun he, you're going to have to draw the conclusion he's referring to God. Beginning in verse 7 and going on down through verse 12. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I, I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He refers to God. He thinks God has done this to him. And he has put darkness on my path. He has stripped my honor from me. All of the glory that I had, the reputation that I had, all of the blessings that I had, all of that has been taken away. And so there's the hostility of the friends. That's verses 1 through 6. You guys are miserable counselors. You're constantly barking at me about my errors. And even if I had committed error, it would just be my business, not yours. But now he's talking about hostility of God toward him. He's wrong about that. He doesn't understand that. Now, the language that he uses is rather specific. He walled up my way. He's put darkness on my path. He has stripped my honor uh, from me. He's taken everything that I have that was important to me, and he has taken it away. And so he is, is saying from this instance, God has caused this. Now, let's stop and think about that for a second. You know, I've talked about that quite a bit. But isn't that what Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz were saying? God's brought this on you? Isn't that what Job is saying now? God has brought this on me? They're both saying that God did this. But they're both saying it from very different perspectives. His perspective is God has been unjust. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar have said it's because you're a sinner. So they're both saying that God has brought this suffering upon you, Job. Job is saying it and the friends are saying it. But at the same time, they're saying it from two entirely different perspectives. Job's perspective here in this chapter, chapter 19, is that he's dealing with me unjustly. It's not just. Now, God doesn't do that. Will the God of all the earth deal justly, Abraham asked. And the answer is, yes, indeed, he will. He will be just. And he is wrong about this particular matter about God. He has stripped everything away from me. Verse 9. He breaks me down on every side, and I'm gone. And he's uprooted my hope like a tree. Verse 10. He's also kindled his anger against me. Now, this is a little bit different metaphor here. Now we're at sort of a warfare kind of metaphor. So he changes the figure of speech for us, but it still is making the same point. Very picturesque way of saying it. But now, 
God has waged war against him. That's his feeling about it. He has also kindled his anger against me, verse 11, and considered me as his enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and camp around my tent. And there's sort of a, even here, a sadness. Why would the enemy come and encircle a tent? I mean, they would encircle a city. You and I have talked about how they build ramparts against the, the, um, the walls and ramps against the walls and push over the walls and take the city by circling it and by pushing the walls down and taking the city. And we've talked about that a number of times. And he uses that kind of figure of speech here in verse 11 and 12. And I'm just a tent. And he's encircled me. And he's done what he could as my enemy and considered me as his enemy, verse 11. Uh, His troops come together and build up their way against me. That's verse 12 again. And camp around my tent. So we see the suffering of Job once again, but I think the focus in this soliloquy is that Job is referring to God at this paragraph and at this point. And it's, um, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a beautifully written, but in a lot of ways, it's very sad, and in a lot of ways, it's very wrong. Yes, sir. That's it. Right. Yeah. I have nowhere to turn. There's nowhere. I'm com- totally undone, completely undone. Now, these things have been said before, but it hadn't been said like this. And I think whoever that was that made that statement, he's probably right. This probably is a skyscraper type of chapter, the apex of the book, whereby we're really getting the intent of the friends, his intent or thought about God. And now he comes up to about verse 13 and the relatives. So if it's the friends that are against him and God's against him, even my relatives are against me. Verse 13, he has removed my brothers far from me. I don't even have the counsel and the benefit of my family. You would think brothers, sisters would be uh, considerate of the suffering that he's going through. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. And they intimate and my intimate friends have forgotten me. I don't have anybody. I do not have any friends. I don't have any relatives. And like Marvin had pointed out just a second ago, you know, I've got nowhere to turn. And even God himself is against me. It's a sad situation. But keep in mind the test that is before us. The test that is before us is to focus on his faith. Can he withstand this faith? What else can Satan do to him except take his life, which he's not allowed to do? Satan has done every single thing he can to this man to get this man to reject God and turn away from him, but yet Job remains faithful, faithful in the sight of God. Well, he says, and my intimate friends have forsaken me. They've forgotten me, verse 14. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. Even the hired hands don't pay any attention to me. The people that live in the house, you know, the wealthy people, they would hire or they would have slaves and they would draw the water and build the fires and all that kind of thing. 
Our slave today would be electricity. We have electricity that builds the fire and, and brings the water to us, and natural gas that heats our homes and that sort of thing. But in Job's day, people had to do that. And so he's talking about even the maid servants and the servants that I have, they don't pay any attention to me. They treat me like I'm a stranger. And he says, I'm a foreigner in their sight. So you see the thrust of the paragraph. The thrust of the paragraph is that even <clears throat> friends and relatives and acquaintances and servants do not give him any respect. And they have turned their back on him. Now notice this verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. Verse 17. Got bad breath. And of course, why wouldn't he with all that this poor man's going through? Even his wife. Now that's the point that keeps coming up, I think. The, you would think the loving counsel of his wife would be there for him. Even though everybody else has rejected him, his wife, you would think she would be on his side. And she would be one that would help him and encourage him. But no, she's not there either. She's not there to help him. In fact, in the very beginning of this discussion, she came to Job and said, Surely God must hate you, curse him, and die. And Job says, You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we take the good from the hand of God and not take the bad? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He still is faithful to God. The point of consideration is the counsel of his, wife, of his wife. He's lost that. And what comes to my mind is the fact that Satan has done every possible thing to him to get him to recant. To get him to say, I don't believe in God anymore. Now the guy I was talking to on the telephone today, he didn't have to go through anything like this to come up with a statement like that. But, but Job had such faith, he would not say that. He would not turn away from God. And I am loathsome to my own brothers. That's verse 17. He says, even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me. And those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. In other words, there's nothing left to me. The only thing left is death. And I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth, verse 20. So now you may want to mark that verse, verse 20. I'm in Job chapter 19, I'm in verse 20. And it's become a very famous passage in Job. Maybe it's the most famous passage in Job, I don't know. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And basically, that has become a cliche for us. I really, I just barely missed it. Um, I just barely, it just about took me out, but I just missed it by the skin of my teeth. But I'll tell you what Job means by that. Now, we look at it from that standpoint, you know, a, ver a very near type situation. We're almost lost. Man, I escaped that. But I think what Job is saying is, I've lost all my teeth, and all I have are my gums. That's the skin that I have left. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. I don't have any teeth. I've lost them all, and all I have are my gums. And, and that's the only thing that I've got left. And the next step is death. That's all that's left. 
Pity me. Pity me, O you, my friends. Verse 21. There's not another book in the Bible like Job. There may not be another chapter in the book of Job like this one. We've read a couple of hard chapters. We certainly have. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Verse 22. See, he's back to his physical pain point now. The physical pain. He's talking about God is hostile to him. His friends are hostile to him. His associates are hostile to him. His relatives are hostile to him. The servants are hostile to him. Even his wife can't stand him. And now he's brought himself back to this very point that I am filled with such suffering. Can't you have pity for me? It's a sad picture that we have in the pages of the Bible, but the Bible is recording it accurately. This is how it happened. This is what he's saying. And this is what he's going through. But in the midst of that, You've got another paragraph here that begins in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And he's saying, oh, may my words be recorded for future generations. And by God's mercy, they were. And we're reading them tonight and we're studying them through the course of our study in the book of Job. And he's asking, oh, that my words could be written down, inscribed in a book, translated book. But they don't have books in ancient times in Job's day. They had scrolls. So fair. So fair is the Hebrew word for scroll. Write it down in a scroll. But notice what he says here. I want it written down so that it will be permanent, a permanent message that with an iron stylus and lead. In other words, he's saying there, take a chisel and a hammer and chisel it in a stone and then melt the lead and pour the lead into the chiseled letters of the stone so that we'll have a permanent record of what he has gone through. Pour the lead into the rock and let it be engraved. All right, somebody else. Somebody have a question or comment? Yes, sir. Yeah. Very. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, um, Danny's making a good point here. Even though he's going through tremendous levels of suffering that we don't know about, we have never experienced, and hopefully we never will. Uh, still, he writes in a very fluid, eloquent way, in a beautiful, poetic way. And 
is being given to us and preserved to us by God so that we can understand the great message of Job and learn by it. And so I think you're right, even though there's such suffering here over a period of time, I don't know how long of time it is, but still he's able to express himself and, and give us his feelings, his understandings, and what he's going through and the experiences that he's facing. So it is amazing from many perspectives, and that's certainly one of them. Now, I use the word here in verse 25. I'm sure you have it in your translation. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. The Redeemer. Now, the Hebrew word for Redeemer is goel. Goel. You find it in the book of Ruth. It, it plays a prominent position, the word. It comes up in Leviticus in the old law. It comes up, a redeemer was one that would come in and take the estate <coughs> of another, of, his, of a brother, or take the wife of a brother who had died and had no children, as in the case of Ruth, uh, would exercise the leveret law of marriage. And we'd have to go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus to understand all that. But the leverage law of marriage was that if you married and your wife and you died but you didn't have any children, she could take your brother. Your brother could take her as his wife and raise children by her, though those children would inherit whatever the original husband had. So the leverage law of marriage was a custom of the day and a part of the law of God. And, and it comes up in this whole discussion about Ruth. And it's a beautiful discussion about Boaz functions as a goel, a redeemer, for Ruth. Her husband has died. He takes her as his wife. And there you go. The lineage of David is developing and goes on down through to Jesse and then to David himself. Well, that's the same word and that's the idea. So the redeemer in the Old Testament is not talking about Jesus Christ of the New Testament. But the concept of the Redeemer is the one who buys the rights and privileges of the underprivileged and takes it as his own, which is his right to do. And so now he brings that point up in verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, we understand what Redeemer means, but I'm asking the question, who's the Redeemer? And the question comes up, and a lot of different ones will um, make the point and argue the point with regard to the Redeemer, but it seems to me that he'd have to be saying that the Redeemer is God because he refers to God in the next verse. But in verse 25, and at the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. For, eat, for after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Now that's amazing that he would know and understand that. Uh, that he would understand that even after death, he's going to face the Redeemer. He's going to face God and that God would be there with him even though God has destroyed his skin. Now that verse 26, look and see how you have it translated there. Uh, even after my skin is destroyed, is what this American Standard Version has. The idea is the skin is ripped off or stripped off the bone. Even when the skin is stripped off the bone, I know that my Redeemer lives. And it shows great faith in that Job believes God's going to exonerate me. 
Now, he has the idea that God is doing this, but he has the faith that God is going to make this right. God's going to exonerate me. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I would think that of all the things that we face, and we face problems, but aren't our problems like stubbed toes and pricked fingers compared to this? I mean, aren't our problems so... Now, they're big. I would not minimize the problems you may have faced or will face for anything. I, they're problems. They're real. And they're important. But, I mean, if you compare those problems to this, I mean, aren't our problems like stump toes and pricked fingers and things like that compared to what this man has gone through? But yet he has faith in God. Yet he knows his Redeemer lives. He knows that God is going to exonerate him one great day. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, verse 27, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a cause against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourself. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. I think he understands far more than Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. He understands much more about God, God's nature, and God's great judgment, and how God is going to judge the wicked and exonerate the righteous. And I see that here in chapter 19. Well, a comment or question before we go on. Anybody? Yes, sir. A burst of faith. Exactly. You know, you're exactly right. Yeah. He gets so down in the dumps, I'm as low as I can be, and then he has a burst of faith. I know my Redeemer lives. I know he does. And that I will see him in the last day, and that he will exonerate me, which is the thrust of the passage. Yes, ma'am. You know, I, you know I mean, the length of the, the duration of the suffering. You ask a good question. I don't know that I can answer that. You ask a very good question, and it comes to mind, but I don't know that I could answer that really. Uh, how long the duration was, I just don't know. Somebody else have a comment or question? Speak up, I can't hear you, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. You're right. He is looking on both sides here. The fact that he can look on this side is amazing to me, that he has that faith that he can look on this side of it. So most of this chapter is about this side, but now this last paragraph is about the other side, and he's able to see that with some understanding, and, and uh, that's pretty much an amazing thing, 
And the only thing I can attribute that to is his faith, his confident trust and belief in God. A confident trust and belief that motivates an individual to obey. That is faith. It's the only kind of faith the Bible teaches. A confident trust in God that motivates one from the heart to obey God. Now, if you don't have obedience in that, you don't have biblical faith. But that's what you have here. You have a man who's filled with obedient faith. All right, somebody else. I'm in chapter 20, and let me see what I can do with this in the time that I've got. And guess what? We got Zophar coming up now. Zophar is uh, uh, pretty coarse again in this. And this may be the hardest speech that we've got against Zob at the Job at the present. And Zophar, the Neomathite, answered, Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond. Uh, even because of my inward agitation, I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer, Do you know this from old, from the establishment of man on earth? Now, I've seen that before. And it could very well be that he's picking up on Eliphaz and and what he has said before with regard to that. And what he said before was, you know, the ancients understand this. This has been going on from the very beginning of time. It's always been this way. The wicked are going to suffer for what they've done. And so here it comes up again. And he's just echoing only louder the thing that we've heard in other speeches. It's always been this way from the beginning of time. It's always going to be this way. And you, Job, are no exception. The wicked are going to suffer. And that's why you're, in, that's why you're suffering. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind in the early part of chapter 20 is this idea, you've insulted me. I'm insulted by this. The way you talk insults me. It's not Zophar that's in pain. It's Job that's in pain. And the spirit of my understanding takes me, makes me answer. Do you know this from old? From the establishment of man on earth? Uh, that the triumphing of the wicked is short? And that the joy of the godless momentary? Though his loftiness reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like the refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? So... If one does prosper, it is short-lived. If one does prosper, Zophar is saying, he's not going to prosper for long because it's going to be lost. And that's an eternal principle that's been going on ever since the beginning. Now that's Zophar. But that's not always the case. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. And sometimes the righteous do suffer. And the joy of the godless momentary though his loftiness verse 6 reaches the heavens how great he is and how respected he is he's nothing but he turns to refuse uh, he flies away like a dream verse 8 and they cannot find him even like a vision of the night he is chased away the eye which saw him sees him no longer and his place no longer beholds him his sons favor the poor and his hands give back his wealth his bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. So when you're young and filled with enthusiasm and strength, but you're going to lose all that as time goes along and you become older. 
and your children are going to lose out. You're going to lose whatever wealth you have. You're going to lose whatever respect and consideration. And it's going to be like a dream that was here for a minute and now it was gone. And so the point that we have here with regard to Eliphaz is this is an eternal principle that always takes place. But he's wrong on that. He's wrong on that. Though evil is sweet in his mouth. Now he's going to, the whole point about this, <clears throat> punishment is certain. Punishment for sin is certain. But his mistake is, punishment for sin is not certain in this life. That's his mistake. Punishment for sin is certain in the next life, but not in this life. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. He swallows riches, but will vomit them out. God will expel them from his belly. You're not going to have it for long. And so you see this kind of metaphor where he's eating this wonderful chocolate candy and he wants to savor it as long as he possibly can, which represents the wealth and the prosperity of the wicked. And the wicked really like it and the wicked really enjoy it and they try to hold on to it as long as they can, but ultimately God is going to expel it from them and they're going to lose all the benefit of it. That's not true in this life. That's not true in this life, necessarily. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. He sucks the poison of cobras. Verse 16, the viper's tongue slays him. It's interesting they use both those words. This viper, cobra thing. I was doing a little research on that. One of these, and I forgot now which one it is. Either one of these are bad snakes. I mean, the cobra, I think, is the snake poison that when... It bites you, it attacks the blood, and it's poisonous and causes death because of the poison to the blood, and it attacks the blood. And there's one that um, attacks the nervous system. But then there's some snakes that do both. And I think that's the viper that he's talking about here that does, uh, that does both. He, his venom attacks the blood, his venom attacks the nervous system, you're a goner. Uh, when this happens in verse 14, to the venom of cobras within him, he swallows riches, but will vomit them out. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue slays him. He does not look at the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. He returns what he has attained and cannot swallow it. So his point is, you're going to get rich, but you're going to give it all up. You know, the wicked are going to get rich, sure, but you're going to give it all up. God's going to take it all away from you. As to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor and has seized a house which, has, which he has not built, verse 19. So you got rich over ill-gotten gains. So you become a wicked person. You got very wealthy because of your wickedness, but God's going to take it all away from you. You're not going to be able to enjoy the benefit of it. That's not true. Yet he claims that that's an eternal principle from the very beginning. It's just not true. Now, at death, we give it all up. We're not taking any of that into the next life. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We're not going to take physical matters over there into eternity. And so we're going to give it all up. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to give it all up here. Even the wicked may prosper all the days of his life. It's just that Zophar does not understand. He speaks, but he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, I'm at a pretty good stopping place. I'm in chapter 20, 20, verse 20. And um, he's going to talk about the quick anger of God that comes upon the wicked. But we'll save that for next time, and, and you can work on your questions and that kind of thing. And if you have questions, call me. Uh, let's see. Did I hear two bells? No. I have not heard two bells. Almost two bells. <laughs> See, if I had not said anything, we could still be studying. So, anyway, it's a good place to bring it to an end. Comment or question before we go. Job chapter 20. We'll pick up with verse 20 next time, Lord willing. Well, it's not an easy book. But it is a powerful book. It's a strong book. It's a book that we need to know. By all means, we need to study it very carefully as, as well as we possibly can. Now, I will give Zophar this. God's going to judge sin. He's right about that. God's going to judge sin. And God's going to balance the books at the end. By that, I simply mean God's justice will prevail at the end. Now, justice doesn't always prevail in this life. But in the end, it will prevail. All right, why don't we have a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the day and for its many blessings. We're thankful for your love and care, for the wonderful way that you have provided for us in your providential way. We ask for forgiveness of our sins, Heavenly Father. We have them and we ask for forgiveness as we repent of them and we strive to study and apply your word to our lives so that we can be more like Jesus. Be with these families that are here tonight with their families, their children, their loved ones. Bless us, Heavenly Father, as we live for you. May we continue to grow in our love for each other and our love for you and our love for your word. Be with us now as we depart. Heaven save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.